The scripture for today's sermon comes from Philippians 1, 27 through 30. The word of God speaks to us. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's word to us. All right. Well, good morning. You doing okay? All right. A rowdy group, 10 o'clock. Let's go. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm really glad to be here with you guys today. And uh, yeah, just as Matt said, my name is Chad Kinser. I serve as a teaching pastor and an elder in our downtown congregation. But part of my role means I get to be part of some of the life of our other congregations and get out here. It's been since David was on sabbatical uh, that last I was out here. So it's, it's fun to get the weekly reports um, that come around from our congregations and hear David's regular reports at our elder meetings just about the growth that's happening here, not just numerical growth, adding another service since last I was here, but also just the depth of what God is doing in your church. You guys are an encouragement to all of our congregations to keep going after Jesus. And so it's, it's really fun to be here today. And it's Super Bowl Sunday. I didn't know what I was gonna, response I was going to get from that. So uh, Chiefs fans. All right, 49ers. <laughs> okay. She's going for it. Hey, the last service, it was awesome. Like over here, there's like a teenage guy, and I go, 49ers, and he was like, yeah, and he realized he was the only one in the room. And I was like, you can go for it, dude. You can... Puppy bowl people. Okay, like there was more 49er fans than puppy bowl. All right. Um, well, hey, listen, I'm really glad you guys are here today, and um, let me kind of explain uh, what we're going to do, and then I'll pray, and, and we'll get after it. So where we find ourselves, last few weeks, you know that we've been talking about our mission as a church. We walked through about three or four weeks on our mission to love God, love people, and push back darkness. That's stuff we feel like God's called us to as a body uh, since, since our early days, since the first uh, planting of our church. And that's not going to change. That comes right from Scripture. We believe that's like the mission uh, of, of God's church from Scripture in every time and every place. And so we, we want to get after that. And where we are now, coming off of that, this last weekend with the Feminine Virtue Conference that's been long awaited and prayed for and, and was so, so powerful. I've heard so many amazing testimonies from that. But that's going to kick off next week, next Sunday, a three-week preaching series on feminine virtue, uh, much like our, our masculine virtue stuff last year, conference and preaching series. And so where we find ourselves today is sort of in the middle of that. Mission, important season of formation in our church, not just for the women of our church. We believe this is important formation of, for all of us. Just as our, our sisters heard about masculine formation last year, we want to hear about uh, feminine formation as followers of Jesus, even as brothers in Christ, so that we're a family together, understand what we're chasing together in a unified way. And so with all of that coming around, and then like the growth of this congregation, it felt like a moment, an opportune moment, just to think about our unity as a church. So that's not just sort of like the, the hottest topic necessarily in the room that you were hoping we were talking about today. But I think there's really something important here for us as we're chasing seasons of discipleship, getting after mission together, and then thinking about growth. Um, our founding pastor, Josh Curry, has often said this. Jesus expected the church to grow. But if you notice the ministry and prayers of Jesus, he prayed for the unity of the church. 
And so you, you don't just sort of drift toward unity. Like that's something you, you, you pay attention to, you keep watch over, and you give yourself toward because it will be a fight at times. And so today I wanna to think about the, the unity of the church. And so if you please pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll get to work. Our God, we, we simply ask today um, that what we don't have would you grant us. And where our love has grown cold, would you stoke it? And what we don't know, would you teach us? And we trust your word is sufficient for all these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, is in middle school now, and so that's its own kind of fun. Amen? Uh, but one of the things that's really fun is that all the school sports are open to her, right? So she's like, she's loving all of that. She's jumping into stuff she's never even played before uh, just because she loves doing it with her friends and, and with her school. And so she's about to start soccer season. And so my job as dad is taking her to all these like early morning, you know, before school practices. And so it's had me sort of enjoying this season with her. It's been super fun. But back, honestly, thinking back on, you know, when I was growing up and doing, doing the same kinds of things, I realized just one look at me shouts athlete to you. Um, but but I, I, did, I did play sports growing up. And I remember all those preseason practices, the ones that no one likes. The ones where your coach would tell you, hey, hey don't bother bringing your cleats today. They won't be of any use to you. Uh, bring your running shoes, you know. And you're like, that's not going to be any fun. Um, and I remember our coach would run us in those preseason practices. He'd run us until we were about to break. And he would keep watch on things so that no one had to report things back to their parents. But we, we would come in at a moment of breaking, it seemed. And he would give us some sort of speech, you know. And we would think, well, if practice is over, we've really done it today. And though that speech was actually just to remind us that that's a breather back on the line, you know. And I now have much better perspective on what, what preseason practices, conditioning practices were all about. Our coach was trying to form for us, on the front end of the year, a bit of controlled adversity. A bit of controlled adversity. So let me make this not fun before the fun starts, so I can see who keeps showing up when it inevitably will get hard again. That, that was the whole idea. Who keeps showing up? He wanted to know, would we turn on one another? Would we turn on one another when it got hard? How would we treat the guy next to us when he didn't get his run in under the time the coach had set, and so he gets a break while everyone else runs a punishment laugh on his behalf. How would we treat one another? When things weren't going our way, when it wasn't fun, when someone wanted to quit, when someone did quit, he wanted to know who would stand together. Would we stand together? He wanted to know something of the chemistry of the group of boys in front of him. Would we be willing, would, would we be willing to work for the guy next to us, even at great cost to us? Would we keep... The idea, you see it, will we keep showing up? And so everyone here today, maybe you've got stories, I'm reminding you of like traumatic events in your past or something, um, but you've got stories of unity like that, of a team that you were on or maybe a team that you're currently on in your job and a project that you're working on. And the thing about unity is it's, it's not an explicitly Christian thing. Let's be clear about that. The world values unity. The, the world understands Unity. Unity is a powerful thing, but here's what I do want you to think about today. God has purposed that unity, right? This thing that is common in the church and in the world, unity, he has purposed it to be a really powerful thing for his church. And not just for like us in here, 
It's not just like this is a really critical thing for us in here. He intends it to be a really powerful thing as a testimony to the world. Just like those old preseason practices, there's something powerful that happens when a group of people learn to keep showing up for one another. Something really powerful that happens. And this is why I want us to think about what Paul says to the church at Philippi. I don't know how familiar you are with the letter to the Philippian church, but it's the only letter in the New Testament that isn't at its heart corrective. Every other New Testament epistle has sort of like a confrontational spirit to it. Paul is addressing something in the church to correct something that's gone adrift, but not the Philippian church. He's writing to them as a spiritual father, as it were, to just pour gas on the fire, to encourage them, to cheer them on, to keep pushing them and chasing after Jesus. And so what happens in the first part of chapter one is he opens like a typical New Testament letter. He gives greetings, he gives prayers, he tells the church how much he loves them. He even gives a personal report for himself as to how things are going in his imprisonment in Rome. He's writing from a prison cell, preaching the gospel against the wishes of Caesar. He's writing to them from prison, And then what happens in verse 27, where we'll focus our attention today, in 27, he gives his first instruction to the church. His first instruction to them. He's speaking to them. He's speaking to us. It's God's timeless word. And notice what he says in verse 27. He starts with the word only. So there's a clear focus to his words here. A singular focus. Only, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is his first word to the church. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So Paul starts with a pretty massive instruction, doesn't he? It's a charge to the church. There's sort of a, this is a banner statement, an all-encompassing thing, a foundational calling to those who are Christians. This isn't an altogether surprising thing that the Bible might say, that you would live your life in a way that honors Jesus. But Paul says this as his opening words to the church. And we have a tendency to read a statement like this in sort of a personal way, like, We see the word your there, only let your, and so we think that Paul is talking to us strictly on personal terms. But what Paul is saying here does apply to everyone in here individually. There's something that comes to bear on your life personally, but what Paul is saying here only applies to you so much as you are a participant in the whole. Because what Paul is using here is a plural you. He's talking to the church. If this were an Oklahoma apostle, he would say y'all, right? Y'all, live your lives in a way that is honoring to the gospel of Jesus. And this is the foundational calling of the church. The only reason the church is a thing is because something has broken through in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Under no other circumstances would this same group of people be gathered together if it weren't for Jesus. The love of God has come to us, we believe. The love of God has done something to us. The love of God has changed us. The love of God is still changing us. And it's made us a group of people who wouldn't otherwise be together. We're not only just together. The scriptures say we're brothers and sisters. And not just because we don't know everyone's name in here. Hey, brother. (laughs) The scriptures actually say we, we bear a common bloodline that flows down from Calvary's cross. And so Paul is saying that we ought to now live in a way, if that's true, we ought to live in a way that honors that. We ought to live in a way that reflects that. We ought to live in a way that shows the worth of God's love breaking through. So the question becomes, again, not all that surprising, the question then would become, well, how do we do that? How do we get after that? 
And so before we look at what Paul's going to say next, I just want to say if I were to like sit, over, sit with you over coffee or something and I were to say, hey, the Bible tells you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus, what do you think that means? What do you assume? What's the first dot that you would connect? If I'm going to get after that, what's the first dot you'd connect to that? I think for many of us, we might assume that what the apostle's about to say next is like a moral, ethical thing. That you got to be a, a person of a certain kind and have you know, your life in between the lines and be of a certain moral fabric. Or maybe you might think that he's going to talk about the regularity of your Bible reading plan or the regularity of your prayer life. But the first dot that Paul's about to connect, the thing he says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, it's a dot that surprises me. Pick up again in 27. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and I see you or I'm absent, he says, I want to hear. Here's the dot he connects. I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, that, you're strive, that with one mind you're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So do you notice the dot here, right? He says, live your life in a manner worthy of Jesus. And the first thing that he does here is to say, the first evidence is not your morality and ethics. Now the Bible is going to speak to that. That's important. Even the book of Philippians speaks to that. We want to be people of a certain kind. But the first dot he connects is not your morality. It's not your ethics. It's not the consistency of your Bible reading plan. It's February, whatever. You've probably failed that by now since January 1. Me too. It's not the consistency of your prayer life. The first dot he connects, the first evidence that you're living in a manner worthy of Jesus is unity with his church. One mind, one heart, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the reason he connects these dots, listen to this, is because you and I can be the kind of people who could have theological boxes checked. Our beliefs are in order. You and I could be the kind of people who have a morality in order. We have a fabric about us. Religious morals are in check. You and I could be the kind of people who are like rigid with our Bible reading plans and our prayer lives, and we have all of that in order. There could be a manner of order to that, but we're also the kind of creatively sinful people where we have a manner of order over here, and yet we still have compartmentalized our lives to the point that we like harbor jealousy toward another brother or sister in Jesus, and so we isolate from them. We can have an order of morals over here and yet on the other side be the kind of person that's overly critical of someone else in the church that doesn't do life like you or think like you or have the politics you have. And so we isolate from them. You could have your Bible reading plan totally in check but still be the kind of person that shows up to other people in the church with gossip in the form of prayer requests about some other person in the church. And you isolate. And so what Paul is driving at here, the reason that this is the first dot he connects, is if we're known to be just as venomous, if the church of Jesus is known to be just as divisive of the world, then what kind of witness is that? What kind of witness is that? Hey, listen, if we can be the kind of people who stand up and say, Jesus has changed my life. He's changed my morals. He's changed my belief. He's changed, he's freed me from addiction. If we could say all of those things, but he hasn't changed our peace with one another, then what kind of testimony is that? You think about our current cultural moment that's all cancel and no grace. 
the church has the opportunity to stand in wild contrast to a world caught up in outrage. We have this wild opportunity to stand in, like unity is actually a prophetic sign. There's something different happening. If you want to talk about cancel culture, just to take an aside for a second, you realize that you and I are people who most of all should be canceled. And canceled by God because of our sin against him. And yet the only thing canceled about us are our sins against him and that by the death of his own son. If you want to talk about cancel culture, we should be canceled by God and yet haven't been. And so the, what Paul is saying is if that's the grace that got us into this thing, then surely now that's the grace we must now learn to practice to one another if we stay in this thing. That's the idea. And so there's three things I want you to see based on this sort of one sort of overarching exhortation to the church. Three things I want you to see. Two reasons why it's so critical from this passage. And then the last is where we get our power to actually, actually do this. And the first reason is this, unity is a missional strategy. Unity is a missional strategy. We talked about pushing back darkness last week, but notice what Paul's going to say in 28. He continues his thought. And don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. One mind, one heart, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And as you would commit to that, he says, I don't want you to be scared of anything from anybody. And now this is wild, guys, because Paul says this. He tells the church this in the midst of an anti-Christian Roman Empire. Caesar is literally putting Christians to death because they'll confess Jesus and not him to be Lord. And he says, I don't want you to be scared of anything. I don't want you to fear an oppressive, persecuting government. I don't want you to fear your neighbors who might sell you out to that government. Early in verse 13, Paul gives the report again from prison. And he says, hey, I'm in prison, guys, for the gospel. But don't worry about me. Actually, everything's going okay here. The gospel's going forward. Now the entire imperial guard knows about Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 21, I'm not sure if they're going to kill me while I'm in here. I'm not sure if they're going to let me live. But if they let me live, my life belongs to Jesus. And if they kill me, my death belongs to Jesus. And he's saying, and I don't want you to think about me as this like superhero apostle that's like, you know, American gladiator sort of courageous. That's not what's happening. He says, actually, this courage is ours. If anybody in the world ought to be courageous, it ought to be the church of the Lord Jesus. You realize, after all, your Lord is resurrected from the dead. All of history is bending to him. Even if it doesn't seem so now, we will know on the great day. The church of Jesus, most of all, ought to be courageous. God really is in control. It's not just a bumper sticker. He really does get the last word. That's very clear. And we don't have to be afraid of anything from anybody as we stand together, one mind, one heart, striving stride by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, guys, this is massively relevant in our moment. This is massively relevant. We're not persecuted like the Philippian church was, but isn't it true among American Christians, there's lots of hand-wringing about politics. There's lots of hand-wringing about progressive sexual ethics. 
There's lots of hand-wringing as you sort of look at like generational studies and the young people seem to be leaving the church or something like that, which I'm not sure together is all true. But there's a lot of hand-wringing among Christians that somehow are afraid that we're on the losing side. You know what Paul would say to us? <laughs> if the Apostle Paul were here, inspired by the Holy Spirit as he was in this text, he would look at us with all of that in tow and he would go, stop being afraid of stuff. Stop being afraid of stuff. Isn't it true? Just think about politics for a second. Isn't it true that God has historically and is currently sovereignly advancing the gospel of Jesus under political ideologies that are far worse than what we're dealing with in America? The gospel always goes forward most powerfully in places that are most hostile to it. You can't shut it down. He would say, quit being afraid of stuff. Now, that doesn't mean we lose our burden and we just cease to care and we like withdraw. That's not what he's saying. In the world, but not of the world, remember. But what Paul would suggest is why don't you exchange your fear over that stuff for a better fight of staying connected to God's people and getting after a common discipleship together. You can't shut that down. And notice why he says this in verse 28. This is wild. He says, this is a clear sign to them, talking about the world, your unity, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. In the words of Ron Burgundy, this just escalated quickly. You didn't see destruction coming in a conversation about church unity. But Paul just said, this is the waterline just raised. This is actually a sign to the watching world of coming judgment, and it's a sign at the same time to your salvation. What does he mean by this? The reason why he calls church unity such a sign is because you and I are people from all sorts of backgrounds. And yet people from all sorts of backgrounds who have no business being together now find themselves together under a crucified and risen Jewish Messiah. That's crazy. And don't you know that in the Son of God crucified, what God has done in Jesus being crucified, stapled to a cross at the hands of sinful men, he's drawn a line in the sand. And the line in the sand is this. It's a sign to the world of either judgment or salvation, depending on what you do with Jesus. At the cross of Jesus, you either see judgment for your sins laid on him and you are saved. Or you see something foolish, and the scriptures are clear, you will one day be judged by the one God raised from the dead. So the picture I get of what Paul is saying here, imagine this with me, the picture I get of what Paul is saying here is two teams standing on either side of a field or a court before the game, sort of staring at each other. And on the one side you have the world, and on the other side you have the church. And the church, on its side, looks small, comparatively. It looks unimpressive. It's undersized. The church looks a bit tattered by life, because we are. The church looks unpopular. Not many fans in the stands. The church looks overmatched. And on the other side, you have the world, more in number, 
There might be more in number, but they're divided into all these little subgroups. These little subgroups would normally be against each other because they're always yelling at each other, but now that they know they're playing the church, they sort of said, we can at least be unified against them. They look strong. There's a stern look on their face. Unless these people start to believe like us, we will silence them over time. And the world looks ready to overwhelm the church. The church looks back, not with a glare. It's really important. We don't fight like the world. The church looks back with, not with a glare. The church looks back not with force. The church actually looks back, vulnerable as they are, and says, how you see us is right. <laughs> We're humbly unified. We're a group of different kinds of people who used to stand opposed to each other, but now we stand together and we're learning to forgive one another because we've been forgiven and we're learning to love one another because we've been loved. And this is the sign that Paul is talking about. It's a patient sign. It's a slow sign, but it's a powerful sign, a witness to the city week by week, year by year. On the one hand, as the church stands unified together, there is a sign of grace and salvation. Because don't you know that the crucified, risen Messiah we stand with is for everybody? He's for everybody. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord really will be saved. Join us. You can literally cross from your side of the field to our side of the field. You can do that. On the other hand, though, the church is also a sign and a warning of coming judgment. Because whatever you think of the church, the gathering of God's people every Lord's Day is a sign that Jesus really is Lord. He really is Lord. And he's king over both salvation and judgment. He stands with his people. His people stand together with him. And this is why Paul says, church unity is a powerful strategy for mission. The second thing Paul says is that unity empowers us to suffer well. Pick up in verse 29. This is a wild verse. He says, don't you know it's been granted to you? The word granted there is like graced. It's been graced to you, a gift of God to you, that for the sake of Christ, you wouldn't only believe in him, we love that grace from God, but that you would also suffer for his sake. There's two things that are graced to every Christian, faith and suffering. Here's what Paul is saying. Faith in Jesus, suffering for the sake of Jesus, both of them are graces because you can't create or endure in either of them apart from the work of God. Both are graces that way. Think about your faith. You didn't make your faith. However, you became a Christian. It wasn't that you sort of like did it. You didn't find God. The message of the gospel is that he found you. He came looking for you. He's making you. And the only reason that any of us endure in our faith is because God endures with us and sustains our faith. That's why it's a grace. He initiates it. He keeps it. He finishes it. And the Bible also talks about suffering the same way for being a Christian. No one chooses that for themselves. But the reason throughout the New Testament that suffering for the sake of Christ is seen as a grace is because at least it means that people see enough Jesus in you to ridicule you for it. If anything, suffering means I'm doing it right. It's not an evidence that God is 
departed from you, it's an evidence that he's all the more with you. There's this really amazing thing that Paul says in Philippians 3. It makes me sometimes question if I'm, not, if I'm even a Christian. In Philippians 3, Paul says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, to which all of us would say, me too. But then he says, and I also want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. What is Paul driving at? Isn't it true that there's, there's just nothing like suffering? There's nothing like the dark day that like forms you to Jesus and it teaches you with Jesus that the Father really does know the way out the other side. Crucifixion Saturday looked really dark. He was buried in the grave and it looked like suffering won until Sunday morning. The Father really does know the way out the other side. If that's true for Jesus, it's also true for those joined to Jesus. This is why Paul says that. So the question becomes, well, how do I suffer well in this life? Like, you don't get out of this life without some suffering. How do we suffer well? The strength, the strength of a unified church with brothers and sisters to help you keep going when your tank is empty. Just at the point we've all been there or will get there or will get there again, at the point where you start to think you're crazy, the power of brothers and sisters gathering around you to say, hey, you're not crazy, or you are crazy, and we're all crazy, but it's the good kind of crazy, and they help you find your faith again. Just at the point where you start to go, I don't have any prayers left to pray. Been there. You have brothers and sisters gather around you and say, hey, we'll pray for you. And we'll pray on your behalf. And we'll do that as long as it takes until you find your prayers again. Just at the point where you start to think, maybe the world is right. Maybe this is all made up. And you consider walking away from this thing. Brothers and sisters show up. And they help you as long as it takes to say with the Apostle Peter, where else am I going to go for you alone have the words of life? And so the unity of the church isn't just a testimony to the world. The unity of the church empowers us to keep going on the dark day. And here's, here's my big finish today. The last thing I want you to see, what's the power? What's the power for all this? I've stated it multiple times this morning. Across this, across this room, we're all different. Different backgrounds, different stories, different hurts, different fears, different preferences, different politics. And the question becomes, in a world that's filled with outrage, in a world that's filled with division, in a world that wants to make all of those things I just named that make us different, a world that wants to say all of those things are the most important thing about us, in a world like that, how do we have the power to endure with any kind of unity? I want you to notice the resolve of this passage. Like, where does Paul go to, like, give us power? His logic for unity. Pick up with me in chapter 2, verse 1. This is what he says. So if, if any of you guys have any encouragement in Jesus, do you know anything of Jesus? Do you have any comfort from love? Do you have any participation in the Holy Spirit? Do you have any affection? Is there anything good that God's brought into your life? He says, well, then I want you to complete my joy here he brings it back by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And now he gives us the way of unity. Just, just, just let your imaginations go if this is what runs this church. I want you to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, I want you to count others as more significant than yourselves. This isn't just sort of kindergarten morality. I want each of you to not look only to his own interests, but the interests of others. And if you're thinking, I can't do that, verse 5, yes, you can. You have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You remember him who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count himself equal with God, but a thing to be grasped. You remember him, how he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For Paul, he's saying, the power and the motivation for our unity is found in everything that Jesus has already done for us. So this call to carry out a unified life together, don't you realize, has been carried out first in Jesus toward you. The only way you can carry out unity toward a Jewish Messiah is that he came to you. So he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus. Isn't it true that he laid aside selfish ambition and pride? Isn't it true that he counted the will of the Father and our interests above his own, even to death on a cross. Isn't it true that he counted our unity with the Father as so significant that he humbled himself even at great cost to himself? And isn't it true that he's the most offended party? He's the one who most of all experiences the disunity of our sin, and he's the first one to make a move for us to be united to him. And so what Paul's saying is, listen, guys, Unity isn't just this sort of nice thing, Oklahoma niceness, whatever that is. He's saying unity is at the heart of the good news of Jesus. God uniting himself to us. God releasing us from our sins. God not canceling us, though he could have. He covers all of our differences with him through the cross of his own son. And this is why Paul says to the church that unity is the first dot to connect to living a life worthy of the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It's what makes the good news good. It's quite literally a living expression. If I were to have jazz hands today and say I'm done, you know. For a church like you, Frontline Edmund, that's growing like crazy, don't take your pride in growth. That's not the beautiful sign of this church to the city. The beautiful sign of this church to the city that God wants is a group of people standing together that keep showing up for one another in a common discipleship, even when it's not fun. And so here it is. Let's keep short accounts with one another. Is there anyone in this room that you need to be reconciled with? Is there anyone a part of a different service that you now attend this one and not that one because you don't want to be in the same room? Is there anyone in your community group that you kind of hope doesn't show up or that you make sure you sit on the other side of the room from? 
What about our peace together? Can we just commit on this really important season of discipleship? Can we just commit to not do the thing that the world does and just start ghosting people? Can we just commit not to disappear? That if you've got issue, that's okay. The Bible's not afraid of issue. Let's just talk about it. Let's talk about it and let's, let's try to navigate peace together. On the front end of this Feminine Virtue preaching series, brothers in the room, men in the room, here's what I would ask of you. Will you please pray like crazy for your sisters? Remember last year, Masculine Virtue, how they prayed like crazy for us and we saw fruit from it? Let's do it. Sisters in the room, pray like crazy for each other. Do it. Like, I just wonder what God would do among us. Like, the vision of the local church that Paul gives to us is given to us for our courage. Don't be afraid of anything. It's given to us for our resilience. Your father knows the way out the other side. And it's given to you for your comfort. Remember Jesus. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against my church. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.